We're glad that you guys are back here with us today after spring break. I hope you guys had a great time uh, doing whatever you did. I know uh, Sam was telling me earlier that he went uh, skiing. And I'm glad that I didn't go skiing because I probably wouldn't be able to stand right now because I would have broken a leg or something. <laughs> what I did do is I went and I got, went to see one of the new movies that came out this week, uh, Captain Marvel. Uh, who here has seen it? Okay, I'm not going to spoil it for those of you that haven't seen it yet and want to, but I actually, I really loved it. It was a great movie. I really enjoyed going to see it. And I, I really love movies. I love stories. And one thing that I've noticed about stories is that at the center of all of them is some sort of conflict or drama. Or else it's not interesting, right? Like, you can go see a movie, and if there's nothing... If there's no conflict, if there's no drama, you probably end up walking out pretty quickly. Um, It becomes not really worth uh, being there to see. I think of movies like uh, Infinity War, which came out last year, so if there's anybody in here that hasn't seen it yet, there's a pretty big piece... There is a huge conflict at the center of it. I won't spoil the ending, but the conflict at the center of it is whether or not half the universe dies. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Think about some of my other favorite movies. There's an older one called The Fugitive. It's with Harrison Ford. And at the center of this movie is this doctor who's been falsely accused of killing his wife and has to clear his name. That creates the tension that the story goes from there with. But it's not just made-up stories. It's not just like superhero movies that have conflict when you tell them at the center. If I was going to tell you a story about my life, I'm going to put some sort of drama or tension at the center of it. If I'm telling you something from history, I'm going to put drama or tension at the center of it. I'm going to show you what was, why it's worth even talking about. I think of... Uh, um, the musical Hamilton, which of course they take some uh, artistic liberties at times, but they're putting a conflict at the center of mostly historical events to make it interesting. The Bible does something similar in Genesis 3, in, the his- in our history, in the story that God is telling us. It establishes very early on the problem that the rest of the Bible is going to set out to solve, similar to a movie early on establishing the conflict that it's going to offer a solution to throughout. In Genesis 3, sin enters the picture. We're separated from God. And the rest of the Bible is about the solution, what's going to happen from there. And every good story brings a resolution to its conflict. See, I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about the problem of sin today, because Dave talked about that last week, and we we established that. Today, I really want to dive into the solution, because most religions agree that there's, there's a problem, whether they call it sin or something else. Even, as Dave talked about last week, atheists, even though they don't call it sin, they still believe that something's wrong when they talk about how, like, the evil of society, and they use these other terms, They're still acknowledging that there's something profoundly wrong. So what are the solutions that are offered? Well, when you boil it down, there's really two. There's the solution of the gospel and the solution of religion. 
The solution of religion says something akin to salvation is through moral effort. While the solution of the gospel is a story of salvation through grace. And these two solutions to the same problem are vastly different. And both of them can't be true. Now, of course, we can broadly call Christianity a religion, but when that's not the way we're going to define it today, and when you boil it down, it's so different from any other religion that I think that lumping it in as just a religion does it a disservice. Because we see how starkly different they are. In, in the life of Jesus, we see this offer of salvation through grace again and again as people come to him simply by faith. It's nothing they're trying to do, but by faith they come to him and they're forgiven, they're healed. In, uh, Paul states it clearly in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. He says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself, it is a gift from God. Not from works, so that no one can boast. It establishes there's nothing that you can do to earn your salvation. It's a gift. It's grace. And then on the other side, you have religion, other religions that try and say, oh, no, you need to do stuff. I want to answer, what's the problem with the religious response? Because when you just put them side by side, you might be able to make an argument and say, oh, well, you 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 can do stuff, right? You can do stuff to earn your salvation. And I would say scripture says clearly no. Um, Galatians 2.21 says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for it is, for if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If we could earn our salvation then Christ didn't need to die, and he died for nothing. But let's tell a story then, because I think stories help us picture this a little bit better. Who here has heard of Jekyll and Hyde? Okay, a few of you. Okay. I would have raised my hand if somebody asked me this when I was in high school, but I would have been completely wrong, because I just thought they were saying Bonnie and Clyde weird. Yeah. (laughs) I had no clue what the story of Jekyll and Hyde was for... Until quite recently, actually. <laughs> For those of you that don't know, the story of Jekyll and Hyde is more a story of Dr. Jekyll. See, Dr. Jekyll realizes that he's this mess of good and evil. He desires to do good, but his evil nature it keeps him from doing the good that he desires to do. But he's a smart man, so he creates a potion. And this potion is supposed to separate out the good from bad and allow... He knows it will allow his bad to operate uninhibited, but it will also allow his good to operate uninhibited as well. And when he takes the potion, we have an excerpt to read from the story. We read, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life, remember this is right after he takes the potion, to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. Every act and thought centered on self. You see, Dr. Jekyll thought, oh, I'm not that bad. So when I take this potion, my bad will act uninhibited, but my good will far, far supersede that whenever it gets to then act as well. But he realizes that's not the case. You see, Edward Hyde is the um, name that his evil side uh, claims, and it's far worse than he could have ever imagined. Edward Hyde kills if someone gets in his way, steals what he wants, does whatever 
he desires because everything about him centers on himself. So Dr. Jekyll has a response to this. He says, okay, I can't take this potion anymore. So he then does things to try and make up for it. We read this next excerpt. I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. And I can say with honesty that my resolve was fruitful of some good. You know how earnestly in the last months of the last year I labored to relieve suffering. You know that much was done for others. But as I smiled, comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect, at the very moment of that vain, glorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most dreadful shuddering. I looked down and I was once again Edward Hyde. So, what happened? You see, Dr. Jekyll saw how bad he really was, and he tried to make up for it through his good acts. Then as he did that, as he's, he's sitting there in a park, thinking about all this, and he says, it says he begins to compare himself to others. And at that moment, Edward Hyde is back. Because at that moment, it's all back about himself, his self-righteousness. We hear, we hear this phrase. He's now looking at others, and it's like, oh, I'm so much better than all these other people. Even amongst him trying to do good, it still is coming from a source of evil. We see this throughout Scripture in James 3.11. We, it talks about salt water and fresh water cannot come from the same spring. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 15, 10 through 20. He's, this is him t- he's talking about you can't, it, what, what you eat doesn't defile you. It's what comes out of your mouth. It's what you say. It's what you do. Because that's coming from your heart. And Jesus says that it's your heart that's wrong. The problem with trying to do, do things to earn our salvation is that it leaves the problem unsolved. Because it's not changing the heart, it's just working, and the heart still works its way out. So, some of you guys might be thinking, I'm, I'm a Christian, though, I'm good. I don't need to worry about this. But there's a reason that this message isn't Christianity versus other religions, it's the gospel versus religion. Because all too often we can twist the gospel and really make it something it isn't and make it no different than any other religion trying to earn our salvation. Uh, turn with me to Matthew 7, uh, 21. In this passage, um, as I was growing up and I, was re- I would read this passage and it would terrify me. Not because of what it said, but what I thought it said. Starting in verse 21, chapter 7, verse 21. We read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Growing up, I didn't understand this verse, and it terrified me because it seemed so arbitrary. I thought what this passage was saying was that when we die, we're going to stand before Jesus, and he's just going to tell some of us who believed in him, nope, not good enough. That's not what this passage is saying at all. 
Look at this passage with me. Start, look, look at specifically at verse 22. We read, On that day many will say, Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons? Guys, hear what they're saying. Didn't we do enough? Didn't we earn your favor in all of this? We did all this stuff. Didn't, didn't that earn your love? His answer is no. Because they missed it. It wasn't about earning it. Ultimately, these weren't Christians that, that he's just casting away. These weren't people that believed in the gospel that he's casting away. They were just people under the guise of religion trying to pass off their works as something other than utterly worthless. They missed the point. Many of them probably set, would have, putting it in a modern context, it would be like people that sit in church every Sunday and think, okay, that's it, I'm good. But here's a quote from Tim Keller. He says, it is possible to avoid Jesus' as Savior just as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking them. I think this quote is incredibly powerful because it really, it, I think, reveals something that we don't think about in our modern context as much. In the Bible, it's pretty clear. You can just look at the Pharisees and you can see this. They, they were following all the rules and they thought they were good and it kept them from the truth of what Jesus was saying. It was the fact that they, they were trying to just cover up and with all their good works, follow the rules, and they thought that was good. But I think when we look at it, Pharisees and modern-day Pharisees, people that embrace and just try and do all this stuff to try and earn their salvation, they, do far, they can do far more damage than people that just don't try at all. Think about it, guys. Whenever... Someone, think like Dr. Jekyll in the story of Jekyll and Hyde. They're so aware of how messed up they really are. Dr. Jekyll, as he sat, before he started doing all this good, he saw just how evil he was. I think that's akin to the way that somebody that embraces a form of legalism to try and earn their salvation can be because they see all the rules and they know how, much, how, how far short they're falling of it. And their response is to try and earn it because they think that's what they have to do. So they try and do all this good. And when they look around, just like Dr. Jekyll, they see everyone else not trying at all. And they become self-righteous. They think about how much better they are. And in the process, they begin tearing other people down trying to make themselves feel even better because they know that they're just, they're still without a savior. They're still lost. They're still evil at the core. So what's the difference of grace? What's so different about it? It's fundamentally different. It's the difference between fear and forgiveness, hurt and healing and hate and love. They couldn't be farther apart. The definition of grace is something you get that you don't deserve. If we, we didn't earn our salvation, 
if there was nothing that we could do to try and earn it, but it was given to us freely, then we can't, we, there's no reason to worry that we could possibly lose it. Picture this with me. There's two kids, both from the same backgrounds, nearly identical backgrounds. The only difference is that one knows that his father loves him unconditionally, and the other one knows that the only reason that his father might care about him is because he does a lot of good things. Now, they're both asked by their father to go mow the the lawn, do yard work, whatever, and they both make the same mistake. Don't know what that mistake is. Maybe they break the lawnmower. What are the responses of these kids going to be? The one whose father loves him unconditionally, he might... He would run to his father because he knows my dad can help me fix this. And he's not worried about losing his father's love. He knows he didn't earn it. He knows his dad just loves him. The other one is going to be terrified. He's going to run. He's going to try and hide the mistake. I don't know. He might even break the neighbor's lawnmower or take the neighbor's lawnmower and put the broken one. He's going to do anything he can to not have to face the reality that he screwed up because he knows his love, the love of his father, isn't secure. That's the difference between grace and salvation by works. One doesn't work. One's fundamentally broken. And let's remember, this isn't a license for the kid that knows his dad loves him to sin. Like, think about it. Sometimes people think like, oh, well, Jesus died for me, and I didn't earn it, and I have it by grace, and I can just go do whatever I want. Would that ever be the response of someone that's received this kind of unconditional love? Are are they going to respond and say, okay, well, my dad loves me, so I'm just going to do whatever the heck I want? No, it's, they're going to respond out of a desire to honor their father, to love their father back. They're not going to want to break the rules that their father puts before them, because they know they love and that the rules are there to love him, and the things that he's asking are out of love. Now, this idea of grace may threaten some. Um, Here's a quote from a woman who, for the first time, had heard the gospel, had heard about salvation through grace, and this is what she says. If I was saved by my own good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights, But if I am a sinner saved by sheer grace, then there's nothing he can't ask of me. This is why Paul calls himself, at the beginning of most of his letters, Christ's slave or servant. It's not out of an obligation, though. It's out of love. It's because he knows he was loved and he was given a gift he could have never earned. He was given grace. And the, the, when Paul uses that introduction that he's Christ's slave, he's Christ's servant, that might sound harsh. might sound like, like you might be confused of why that is. But that's, it's a response out of love. It's, um, if any of you have seen, uh, I don't know how to say it, let, let, that um, Les Miserables, yeah, Les Miserables, that's it. <laughs> Thanks, Bailey. Um, the response, um, I've never actually seen it. I've heard people talk about this example, though. 
there's the individual that he steals some silver from uh, the priest, and the priest gives it to him and forgives him of the mistake. And that changes his life. He didn't deserve this forgiveness, but it's given to him freely. And it challenges him at his core. What's the difference then at the heart of religion versus the gospel? It's that what one side does everything to try and earn and never can, the other knows it can't earn and it gets freely. And that difference at the heart is because they're different at the root. Every other religion comes and says, this is the way that you can get to the divine. But Jesus says, I am divine, and I came to do what you never could. So now, guys, if you guys break up into your tables, we've got some questions for you guys to go through. Um, thank you guys for your time.